0: Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay, with an hour of mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about research into the latest developments in the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, and along the way reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as better educating the general public about mental health issues. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome again this Episode of Psychiatry Today is pre-recorded for airing on July 22nd, 2015. Thanks very much for tuning in. Far and away, the leading mental health related issue that took place uh, in the past week was the verdict that came down in the trial of the Colorado movie theater shooter. Uh, He was found guilty of murder. And this is really a wonderful illustration about how a uh, murder case with the insanity defense uh, really played itself out appropriately, showing that the justice system works, that even in the case of a murderer who clearly does have mental health issues, uh, standards are very strict when it comes to an insanity defense. And this case proves, once again, that despite what people may think, it's actually very rare that a criminal defendant mounts an insanity defense, and even more rare that that defense is successful. And uh, and so I just said it failed in this case. <clears throat> The jury rejected the insanity claim. Uh, James Holmes, who was the movie theater shooter, was convicted last Thursday in the 2012 attack on moviegoers at a midnight Batman premiere after jurors swiftly rejected defense arguments that the former graduate student was insane and driven to murder by delusions. The 27-year-old Holmes could get the death penalty for the massacre that left 12 people dead and dozens of others wounded. The initial phase of his trial took 11 weeks, but it only took jurors about 12 hours over a day and a half to decide all of the 165 charges against Holmes The same panel must now decide whether he should pay for his crimes with his life. The trial offered a rare glimpse into the mind of a mass shooter, as most of them are killed by police, uh, as what just happened um, in Chattanooga with the shooter who attacked a military recruiting station and killed several Marines or uh, they kill themselves, or they simply plead guilty, and thus we never know all the details of their crimes. Prosecutors, who had the burden of demonstrating that he was sane at the time of the attacks, argued that Holmes knew exactly what he was doing when he methodically gunned down strangers in the stadium-style theater, taking aim at those who fled. They painted him as a calculated killer who sought to assuage his failures in school and romance with a mass murder that he believed would increase his personal worth. He snapped photos of himself with fiery orange hair and scrawled his plans for the massacre in a spiral notebook he sent his university psychiatrist, just hours before the attack, all in a calculated effort to be remembered. That, according to prosecutors. Holmes' attorneys, on the other hand, argued that he suffers from schizophrenia and at the time of the attack was in the grip of a psychotic breakdown so severe that he was unable to tell right from wrong that is Colorado's standard for insanity. They said he was delusional, even as he secretively acquired the three murder weapons, a shotgun, a handgun, and an AR-15 rifle, while concealing his plans from friends and two worried psychiatrists in the months before the shooting. Defense lawyers tried to present him as a once-promising student crippled by mental illness and unable to reveal his struggles to anyone who might have helped. They called a pair of psychiatrists, including a nationally known schizophrenia expert, who concluded that Holmes was psychotic and legally insane. But two state-appointed doctors found otherwise testifying for prosecutors that no matter what Holmes' mental state was that night, he knew what he was doing was wrong. Jurors watched nearly 22 hours of videotaped interviews showing Holmes talking in a flat, mechanical tone about his desire to kill strangers to increase his self-worth. Giving short, reluctant answers, he said he felt nothing as he fired, blasting techno music through his earphones to drown out his victims' screams. Prosecutors showed jurors Holmes' spiral notebook where he scribbled a self-diagnosis of his quote-unquote broken mind and described his obsession to kill since childhood. The pages alternate between incoherent ramblings and elaborate plans for the killings. Well, again, justice was served. The insanity defense failed. He is convicted, and we await what penalty will be administered. Uh, But again, the standard in Colorado, as in most places, is mentally ill or not, In order to mount an insanity defense, you have to prove as the defense that you did not know right from wrong when you committed the crime. The only difference in the state of Colorado is that the burden is on the prosecution to show that the criminal defendant was sane at the time of uh, the crime and therefore should be convicted as opposed to the burden being on the defense, showing that the criminal defendant was insane and therefore should not be convicted. While the prosecution did their job, uh, this definitely was an appropriate verdict. Uh, there's no way even the most severe mental illness could possibly excuse these horrific crimes, and uh, it will be up to... Uh, the legal system now in Colorado as to whether he is in life in prison, uh, or will the prosecution try for the death penalty, which more than likely that's going to be tried for. We all know what happens with that. Years of appeals, delaying families getting closure. Uh, but regardless, um, very important step in that the insanity defense uh was not successful. Now, at the time I'm recording this podcast, details are still emerging about the situation with the uh, young uh, Jordanian-American man, I guess he is, uh, who shot at a military recruiting station and then drove to a naval installation and shot and killed uh, several Marines and a sailor, uh, two of them with Georgia ties. Uh, there is a story uh, that's just come out about whether he suffered from depression or substance abuse. Uh, I'm going to wait until more details are available and perhaps talk about it on next week's podcast. Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll see as more details come out. The story is just too new at this point. Well, um, in that case, uh, the point is moot, however, because um, he was killed by uh, police who came to the aid of the military installation. And so we're not going to be able to hear uh, from him what his thoughts and motives were and and get any clues about his mental condition, um, except after the fact from talking to friends and family and looking at his writings, and postings on the internet. Well, besides uh, these psychiatry and the law situations, there were other prominent mental health-related news stories that took place last week, a couple of articles that caught my eye and I thought would be interesting to talk about. Um, This story made the rounds on the internet. Your phone knows if you're depressed. Talking about your smartphone, if you have one, uh, it turns out some scientists have found that things like the time you spend using your smartphone and its unique GPS location sensor data can detect depression. Surprisingly well, in fact. A scary thought, right? We already know that There are a lot of things that a smartphone can tell others about our behavior. Police can use devices uh, to triangulate our location and find us. Um, That shouldn't bother us if we're not committing criminal acts, but um, if they're just committing broad surveillance, that's certainly uh, not something any of us should have to put up with. And uh, also our... Cellular providers uh, certainly can collect data on us from our phones. Likewise, uh, if we use the Internet browser on our phone, then uh, what web pages we migrate to can uh, generate data that is collected by um, certain websites and, and used to generate ads that may pop up on our phone. But uh, after this first break, we'll talk about how the phone can help diagnose depression. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr.
1: Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.atlantahealingcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Our topic now is how your smartphone can help diagnose depression. You can fake a smile, maybe, but your phone knows the truth. Depression can be detected from your smartphone sensor data by tracking the number of minutes you use the phone and your daily geographical locations this from a small northwestern medicine study well how can that be turns out the more time you spend using your phone the more likely you are depressed the average daily usage for depressed individuals was about 68 minutes while for non-depressed individuals it was about 17 minutes spending most of your time at home and most of your time in fewer locations as measured by GPS tracking are also linked to depression and having a less regular day-to-day schedule Leaving your house and going to work at different times each day for example also is linked to depression. Based on the phone sensor data, Northwestern scientists could identify people with depressive symptoms with 87% accuracy. The significance of this is they can detect if a person has depressive symptoms and the severity of those symptoms without asking them any questions. Researchers say they now have an objective measure of behavior related to depression and they're detecting it passively. Phones can provide data unobtrusively and with no effort on the part of the user. Again, just the fact that someone spends an inordinate amount of time on their phone and not moving around as much is strongly correlated with depression. Any method that boasts almost 90% accuracy, that's that's incredible. We don't have any blood tests or um, even other types of paper and pencil diagnostic testing or interviewing Reaches that threshold. Uh, again, just think about this. You may think 17 minutes is the average time a not depressed person spends on their phone. That doesn't seem like very long. You might think, well, hey, you know, I, I'm not depressed, but I spend more than 20 minutes on my phone every day. Maybe you're under, you're rather, maybe you're overestimating how much time you actually spend. And, and think about this. Um so an hour and almost 10 minutes on the phone on a daily basis on average and that means it's more likely you're depressed especially if you're staying only in a few different locations not moving around much now this research could ultimately lead to monitoring people at risk of depression and enabling healthcare providers to intervene more quickly again sounds like it would be helpful but somewhat scary thought if you consider how obtrusive that could become and uh, you know what are the privacy implications of that this study is to was to be published in the july fifteenth issue of the journal of medical internet research the smartphone data was more reliable in detecting depression then daily questions participants answered about how sad they were feeling on a scale of 1 to 10. Their answers may be rote and often are not reliable. The data showing depressed people tended not to go many places reflects the loss of motivation seen in depression. When people are depressed, they tend to withdraw and don't have the motivation or energy to go out and do things. So that's why the idea of GPS location showing not a lot of variation in movement being correlated with depression. While the phone usage data didn't identify how people were using their phones, people who spent the most time on them were surfing the web or playing games rather than talking to friends. People are likely when on their phones to avoid thinking about things that are troubling or painful feelings or difficult relationships. It's an avoidance behavior that is seen in depression. Researchers analyzed the GPS locations and phone usage for 28 individuals, 20 females and 8 males with an average age of 29 over two weeks. The sensor tracked GPS locations every five minutes. To determine the relationship between phone usage and geographic location and depression, the subjects took a widely used standardized questionnaire measuring depression. It's called the PHQ-9 at the beginning of the two-week study. The PHQ-9 is a questionnaire that asks about symptoms used to diagnose depression, such as sadness, loss of pleasure, hopelessness, disturbances in sleep and appetite, and difficulty concentrating. They then developed algorithms using the GPS and phone usage data collected from the phone and correlated the results of those GPS and phone usage algorithms with the subject's depression test results. Of the participants, 14 did not have any signs of depression and 14 had symptoms ranging from mild to severe depression. The goal of the research is to passively detect depression and different levels of emotional states related to depression. The information ultimately could be used to monitor people who are at risk of depression to perhaps offer them interventions if the sensor detected depression or to deliver the information to their clinicians. Again, the article doesn't mention the can of worms this opens in terms of privacy issues, but I think that's fairly obvious. Future Northwestern research will look at whether getting people to change those behaviors linked to depression improves their mood. They will see if symptoms of depression can be reduced by encouraging people to go to more different locations throughout the day, to have a more regular routine, and to spend more time in a variety of places or simply to reduce their mobile phone use. We'll see. But in any case... Interesting thought that your phone can tell if you're depressed or not. Um, I wonder if someone will just write an app and uh, that'll be it. We won't depend on the Northwestern researchers for this information. Well, there you have it. Think about that the next time you're spending a lot of time on your phone. Next up on Psychiatry Today. This is an extremely important article that touches on a lot of what is wrong with medical research into the development of new medications for depression, Um, actually of new medications for any mental illness, but especially depression. And I believe what the authors of this paper that we're going to be talking about are saying accounts for why there was so much controversy several years ago about whether or not antidepressants simply don't work any better than placebos and that a lot of research seemed to demonstrate that they were no better than placebos. Well, it turns out that antidepressant trials, in other words, clinical research trials to investigate Uh, the effectiveness and safety of antidepressants, they exclude most real-world patients with depression. That's right. If you're the average typical person in the general public who suffers from depression, you would most likely not be eligible to be a research subject in a clinical trial for prospective new antidepressant. And that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? No, it doesn't. And uh, so let's go over this article and um, you'll begin to see what I mean. Now, more than 80% of people with depression in the general population aren't eligible for clinical trials of antidepressant drugs. According to a study in the Journal of Psychiatric Practice. At least five patients would need to be screened to enroll just one patient meeting the typical inclusion and exclusion criteria for antidepressant registration trials, uh, which is what the clinical trials are that ultimately lead to the drug being approved by the Food and Drug Administration to be marketed and sold as a treatment for depression. This study highlights some major differences between patients with depression seen in everyday clinical practice and those enrolled in antidepressant clinical trials. Now, um, Again, most patients with major depression aren't eligible for these trials. Antidepressant registration trials use certain inclusion and exclusion criteria to create a group of patients with similar characteristics. These criteria increase the chances of detecting true drug effects while reducing false signals of safety problems or side effects. For example, these trials commonly exclude patients with other medical problems. If their illness worsened during the study, it might raise inaccurate safety concerns about the drug being studied. All right, well, we're going to take a commercial break right here. When we come back, we'll talk more about the background of how clinical trials really aren't looking at real-world patients and the implications for how we develop new depression drugs. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
3: Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is, Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills, because Peachtree E&T Center is where patient care counts.
1: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Getting back to our discussion of clinical trials for antidepressant drugs and how these research studies exclude your typical average, everyday, real-world patient with depression. To find out how the inclusion and exclusion criteria affected patient selection for these antidepressant clinical trials, researchers analyzed more than 4,000 patients from the Sequenced Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression, or the STAR-D study, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health STAR-D was the largest and longest study of of depression treatment ever conducted. And again, the STAR-D stands for Sequenced Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression, and with it being conducted by the National Institute of Mental Health, which is a division of the National Institutes of Health, our government health research agency this Was not sponsored by any pharmaceutical company and therefore did not have any such commercial bias. Now to ensure that the real world population of patients with depression was represented, STAR D used minimal exclusion criteria, unlike virtually all depressant trials that are sponsored by pharmaceutical companies developing these drugs. What the researchers found was that more than 82% of STAR-D patients would not be eligible for enrollment in a current antidepressant registration trial based on a list of the usual inclusion and exclusion criteria. 14% of them would be excluded on the basis of age alone. That's because most antidepressant trials exclude patients older than 65. In fact, uh, they conduct separate trials uh, usually for those uh, of that age. Another 15% would have been excluded because their depression was less severe than a commonly used cutoff point. More than 20% of the patients in the STAR-D study would be excluded from typical antidepressant clinical trials because of a clinically significant or unstable general medical condition. 21% of women would be excluded because they were not using birth control to prevent pregnancy during the study. And that's a common exclusion criteria. Uh, If a woman is of childbearing age, uh, the researchers don't want to have something happen where they become pregnant while on the study drug uh, potentially exposing their unborn fetus to uh, this dangerous untested drug. Because many antidepressant clinical trials use even stricter criteria, the true exclusion rate is probably even higher. For example, more recent studies have used even higher severity thresholds for enrollment, which would eliminate more than 90% of the STAR-D population. The researchers also point out that all of the STAR-D patients had obviously agreed to participate in that research study, which is something many people with depression might be unwilling to do. The researchers hope their work will help drug developers understand how inclusion and exclusion criteria may affect enrollment and in these uh, antidepressant clinical trials and also help them into developing an appropriate recruitment plan and timeline for how they conduct the trials. The timelines in most drug studies are unrealistically short, and their recruitment plans are often woefully inadequate, resulting in studies that take longer than expected to complete and frequent budget overruns. Failure to consider the effort needed for antidepressant registration trial recruitment might lead to lost revenue, delays in bringing a drug to market, or, most importantly, in my opinion, failure to develop a potentially effective medication. The findings may also help to explain to healthcare practitioners why antidepressant trials are tend to overestimate the benefits of antidepressant treatment in real-world patients with depression. Obviously, the researchers add, the more patients who are excluded from these trials, the greater the chances the results will not generalize to routine clinical practice. I think the implications of their work are huge, and we can... We who look forward to continued development of new and better antidepressant drugs and other treatments for depression uh, only hope that pharmaceutical companies who develop these products will heed this advice, and perhaps more importantly, that the Food and Drug Administration will take note of this research because after all, when a pharmaceutical company is conducting An antidepressant clinical trial, they're basically stuck with having to follow a very strict script, basically, that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, gives them. Uh, This is how you have to conduct your trial. This is the data that we'll want to see, um, and so on. And uh, if the FDA were to look at this study and say, hmm, well... um, if, if this is how we're telling research uh, researchers to conduct their trials, and it's not resulting in real-world patients, uh, maybe we do have to look at this. Uh, what happens as a result of all this is that researchers who are doing these trials have too high a hurdle to get past to demonstrate that medication will be helpful, uh, because Instead of looking at real-world patients with real-world problems and symptoms, you're looking at an artificially pure population of people uh, with severe illness, and it just uh, isn't necessarily relevant to everyday clinical practice. And the fact that the trial medication may not work in this population doesn't mean that it won't be a useful treatment for depression. But unfortunately, what happens is when a potential new medication fails, one of these clinical trials with this very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, the company developing it just give up and say, well, the trials were negative, it didn't work, and that's it. Uh, Because by this time, they've already invested – a great deal of money in it and if the trial isn't successful, uh, they're never going to be able to, to get it approved as a treatment and recoup the research and development dollars they've already put into it. Uh, so the drug uh, gets put away somewhere on a shelf, never to be heard from again, and uh, that could have been a potentially good treatment. Sometimes Another pharmaceutical company, typically a a smaller startup type company, might buy that compound uh, from the original company who thought about developing it as a treatment but didn't seem to be successful with it and have another shot at it and occasionally uh, bring it to market. That happened with the relatively new antidepressant Vibrid, for example, but unfortunately that's the exception. So the bottom line from this study is that there definitely needs to be reform in the way that clinical trials are conducted to develop new antidepressant drugs and uh, to make the trial population look more like real-world patients and give us a better idea of whether the medication will work in this population. Now, let's move on to another article I saw and I thought, wow, this would really be good to talk to you about. It has to do with meditation. Now, until fairly recently, meditation was one of those things that people looked down at and said, well, how can this really help with mood problems? Uh, Isn't this just one of those new age type things uh, that is not really backed by hard scientific data and really not found to be helpful except for some few people who believe fervently in it. Well, it turns out that there is hard science to examine the benefits of meditation. And guess what? Real science, hard science, finds that it works. People who meditate regularly say it provides mental, spiritual, and physical benefits. Some doctors recommend meditation to help treat chronic pain, high blood pressure, and other ailments. Subjecting this mind-body practice to scientific testing is a challenge, however, since states of mind are hard to measure. And most studies tend to be small and have problems in methodology and high dropout rates. Still, despite these limitations, three new studies provide further evidence that meditation may do the body and the brain good. So there was one study about easing neck pain. This isn't even A mental health issue, but still just a positive study to show that something just using your mind can help you feel better. In a study in the Journal of Pain, people, mostly women with chronic neck pain, not attributed to underlying disease, were randomly assigned to either a program of Jyoti meditation, where you redirect your thoughts and emotions to a place of stillness and relaxation, or a standard home-based exercise program that focused on stretching and strengthening muscles and improving joint mobility. Well, you gotta take a commercial break here, so before I run out of time, I'll leave it hanging and we'll go over the results of that and more about meditation when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
3: You can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org. Or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
1: My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system. And if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right before the break, we are talking about scientific data, that's hard science, documenting the benefits of meditation. And therefore, it should not be thought of as some new age sort of fringe treatment. Uh, again, I had introduced a study about neck pain. So people were compared to either meditation or an exercise program. Now, after eight weeks, the meditation group was found to have less neck pain uh, and the meditation decreased neck pain better than exercise, possibly because the meditation helped reduce stress, which is often implicated in neck pain. Of those who were in the meditation group, 58% deemed the treatment to be good or very good compared to 40% of the exercisers and uh, again uh, that was in the journal of pain the next study was looking at sleep and this was in you know one of the top medical journals one of the leading medical journals the journal of the American Medical Association internal medicine journal and it's in the study people with moderate sleep disturbances that were not due to a specific sleep disorder, such as sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome or other medical conditions, followed either a mindfulness meditation program or a sleep education program. The meditation group learned how to focus their attention on the present without making judgments while carrying out activities of daily life. The education group learned about sleep biology and strategies for improving sleep such as eliminating poor sleep habits and creating bedtime routines. After six weeks, benefits were seen in both groups but the meditation group reported greater improvements in sleep quality as well as less daytime fatigue and depression. And lastly, can meditation slow brain aging? Well, meditation may have brain protective effects, according to a preliminary study in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, which compared long-time meditators and non-meditators. Both groups showed age-related atrophy in gray matter on MRI brain scans but the loss was less pronounced in the meditators. Moreover, this atrophy was seen more extensively throughout the brains of non-meditators. The brain's gray matter is involved in the processing of sensory information, such as in memory, decision-making, and emotions. On the other hand, meditators who show high degrees of discipline and commitment may simply have healthier habits overall, which can have positive effects on the brain. The bottom line is that different types of meditation, from mindfulness to transcendental, may have different health-related benefits. What's probably most important, if you want to try meditation, is to find a method that works well for you. Good resources include the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society, and you can find that at umassmed.edu forward slash cfm, and the UCLA Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at tinyurl.com forward slash meditationucla for free guided meditation. And for more on meditation, go to tinyurl.com forward slash meditation And I'll give out all those websites again. But I just want to emphasize, look, there's hard science that shows meditation works. It is definitely worth trying it. Is it going to work for everybody who tries it? Of course not. Uh, but at least if you thought it wasn't real that uh, people report health benefits from it, uh, we can now very, very safely say it is well-documented using hard science and in studies that passed muster and were published in prestigious scholarly medical journals uh, where the data had to be scrutinized and, uh, the study design had to be scrutinized as well. So the effect is real. And again, here are those websites. The Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare and Society at UMass, U-M-A-S-S-M-E-D, umassmed.edu forward slash CFM. That's U-M-A-S-S-M-E-D dot edu forward slash CFM. And then there's the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center. And that's at tinyurl.com forward slash meditation UCLA. And that's for free guided meditation. And for more on meditation in general, tinyurl.com forward slash meditation all right well next up on psychiatry today we're going to look at some research into how the stress hormone cortisol reinforces traumatic memories uh, you've heard me talk about the stress hormone cortisol quite a bit if you're a regular listener to this podcast well it turns out that it strengthens the memories of of scary experiences. However, it is effective in doing so only while the memory is being formed for the first time, but uh, also later when people look back at an experience while the memory consolidates. This has been published by cognition psychologists, this research, and it was in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. Researchers suggest that these results might explain the persistence of strong emotional memories occurring in uh, states of anxiety and especially post-traumatic stress disorder. Strong memories of stressful experiences occur frequently, but they usually fade away over time. People suffering from anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder, however, are affected by terrifying memories that haunt them again and again. It had been shown that the stress hormone cortisol has a strengthening impact on the consolidation of memories, that is, the several-hour process in the course of which a memory is formed immediately after the experience. Cortisol influences the reconsolidation of emotional memories. The researchers demonstrated that cortisol affects memories in humans also during the so-called reconsolidation, that is, the consolidation of memories occurring after memory retrieval. The stress hormone can enhance this process. These results may explain why certain undesirable memories don't fade, for example, in anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder sufferers. If a person remembering a terrifying event has a high stress hormone level, the memory of that specific event will be strongly reconsolidated after each retrieval. So what that means is each time you think about the event, Uh, the stress hormone surges again and reconsolidates that memory, making it stronger. On three consecutive days, the experiments who took part in uh, the study uh, had uh, undergone this procedure. Day one, they learned an association between specific geometric shapes and an unpleasant electric shock. On the second day, some of the participants were given a cortisol pill, others a placebo. Subsequently, they were shown one of the geometric shapes associated with the electric shock. On the third day, the memory for the geometric shapes was tested. Participants who had taken cortisol Remember the fear-associated shape particularly well. This was evident in a heightened skin conductance, which is an established measure for emotional arousal. In other words, if you are emotionally aroused, there is more moisture on your skin, uh, therefore it will conduct electricity more than if you are calm. Now, you can argue the methodology and even the ethics of this research and I agree that it would be nice to look at less artificially created trauma, as it were. Um, but obviously, it's hard to study such a thing. What they would have to do is set out to collect data on uh, consecutive people who showed up to get help for traumatic events, uh, whether that was um, being assaulted physically or sexually um, or in a car accident uh in a terrible fall or or some other such severe trauma. And um, <clears throat> they would have had to have uh blood tests on them in the fairly recent past to document their cortisol levels and then measure them after they'd experienced the trauma. Uh, you can see that this is a fairly narrow set of circumstances that would be difficult to duplicate, hence the artificial situation created in the lab. But I think the research is very interesting for another reason, and uh, on this note I'll, I'll leave you for tonight's podcast. Perhaps this is why mothers always lament that, why do you always remember the bad things that happened during your childhood so strongly? What about all the happy times? Well, maybe it's because cortisol ensures that the bad things that happen to us in childhood are burned forever into our brains, especially into the amygdala, and that makes a stronger impression than all the happy times. Sorry, moms. Well, hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next time, but if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for
1: listening.